This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author Adrian Mayer is joined by CIIS professor Carolyn Cook to explore how some of today's most advanced innovations in robotics and AI were foreshadowed in ancient myth. This event was recorded on November 14, 2018 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. And that's also where you can find out more about us, including how to sponsor future episodes of the show. Good evening, everyone. It's great to have you here. We've been having a wonderful conversation with Adrian Mayer backstage about AI and technology and ethical problems um, that actually are not new. The book, um, Gods and Robots, Myths, Machines, and Ancient Dreams of Technology, is just a riveting foray into mythology, art, and history of the ancient world through the lens of technology. Um, I'd love to start with just some examples of technology in the ancient world and then um, uh, dive into some of the stories from mythology that uh, you might not know. You might know uh, some of the story, but not, uh, not all of the story. Um, so I think Prometheus and Hephaestus and um, Daedalus and Pandora, uh, some of these uh, stories from uh, myth and legend um, that really are uh, provide wonderful insights into the technological marvels of today and also the ethical problems that uh, still feel fresh. Um, I'd love to ask first, Adrian, what, what curiosities and what experiences drove you to um, write this book? Well, I work on... Um, uh, Ancient science, sort of the first inklings of the scientific impulse. Uh, all of my books have that in common. Even though the, the topics seem very uh, diverse, they all have that in common. And I'm looking for those first inklings of science. And I often turn to myth first. Um, so I live in Silicon Valley. And I've lived there for 12 years now. And I'm surrounded by people who are trying to imitate uh, life, make artificial life, uh, improve on nature, and even surpass nature in many ways. And I just wondered how ancient are those roots, that uh, impulse to create artificial life. And I knew that most philosophers and historians believe that the first self, uh, self-moving self devices and robots and automatons were invented in the Middle Ages when they had clockwork uh, mechanisms to make them. But I knew from mythology that people could imagine the concepts and the ideas of self-moving devices and automatons and robots much earlier, long before the technology actually existed. So I treat the mythology of ancient Greece and other uh, ancient cultures as the first science fiction stories. And where science fiction leads, innovation often follows. So the last chapter of my book is about actual designs and inventions of automatons as early as the 4th century BC. But the mythology is the place where the stories really began, where people really started using their imagination 
sort of cultural dreams or science fictions about what if a god had the ability to make advanced technology, and that god would be Hephaestus, the god of invention and technology. And as early as Homer, so more than 2,500 years ago, uh, about 700 B.C., Homer tells us that Hephaestus, and by the way, he's the only god who has a job. He's the only god who works. He breaks a sweat. I mean, he's always at work. All the other gods are just at leisure. So one of, one of his first inventions uh, in mythology, Homer tells us that he built uh, a bank of automated bellows for his forge that could anticipate his uh, need for uh, blasts of air and the, the, these automated bellows could adjust the blasts of air according to when and where he needed them. He also invented for the gods some uh, automatic gates for Mount Olympus so that the, these, are, these are the first automatic garage doors. They would open and close as the gods drove their chariots in and out the of, first of the heavens. Community. That's right. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. And he also, um, he also created a, a staff of uh, what were called golden maidens. These were women who, made of gold who looked just like real women. Um, and they were given strength and reason and mind. But then... Uh, they were also endowed with all the knowledge of the gods. It's kind of a data dump. You don't need that much information, but you never know. Um, and these women could anticipate Hephaestus's every need. And Homer describes them as sort of bustling to and fro in his, in his workshop, helping him at every step of everything he's doing. So um, that's really a description of artificial intelligence. Yeah but it's in a myth that comes from the time of Homer. So those are some of the stories that I was looking at. Those are great. And then Hephaestus um, invents the first robot, possibly, um, Talos. And what's interesting about these myths is that... um, I just want to mention one other invention by Hephaestus that was used in the heavens for the gods. As I said, they're they're at leisure all the time. He's working. So he made uh, a set of driverless carts that could deliver ambrosia and nectar to the gods' banquets on their own, and then they would return when they were empty. Um, So it was a labor-saving device. All these things are really benign Mm -hmm. when you think of them as serving the gods or um, being used uh, in the the realm of the gods, the heavenly realm. But then once these these devices come to earth, that's when trouble starts. Um, Then we get killer robots and um, uh, things don't go well when these... uh, automatic devices and artificial intelligence beings interact on the human plane. So you asked about Talos, the first, uh, first robot in Western literature. Um, he was first described by Hesiod, a poet who lived around the same time as Homer. So we're talking about 750 to 650 BC. This is a really ancient story. And we're told that Zeus wanted to give his son, King Minos of Crete, a gift. And so he had Hephaestus make 
a giant man of bronze called Talos. And this bronze robot was to guard the kingdom of Crete. And it was, it, it was said that he could walk around the entire island three times a day. Well, some people have calculated that means he went 500 miles an hour or something like that. But he was, he's defending the island of Crete against invaders, especially from the sea. Because there, were a lot of pi- there were pirates in antiquity. And we first hear about uh, Talos in the ancient epic of Jason and the Argonauts, the Argonautica. Um, some people think that's older than the Odyssey or the Iliad even. So it's a really ancient story, and yet we have so many details about this robot. He was made of bronze, but he had a, uh, we know his inner workings. He was made of bronze, and but he inside had a single tube or artery um, that went from his head down to his feet, and in that artery or tube pulsated Icor. Icor is the life force of the gods. It's, it's what powers the gods and makes them immortal. So he's got this viva system, and the entire system is sealed by a bolt, a bronze bolt on his ankle. Um, so we know his inner workings, which is quite amazing for the first, first ancient description of a robot in mythology. Um, Jason and the Argonauts almost became his uh, his victims. They landed, um, uh, but before they landed, uh, Talos spotted them. He was programmed to spot strange ships that are approaching the shore. And he's programmed to recognize the ships and then to pick up boulders and hurl them at the ships to sink them. And the ancient coins of Crete actually show uh, Talos as a large bronze man throwing rocks. We've got the ancient coins that show him. Um, And then up close, in close combat, he could heat his bronze body red hot and then grab up someone and hug them to his chest and roast them alive. So this is what Jason Argonauts were facing. Luckily, they have Medea, who is a techno wizard. She's on their side. And so when they land, Talos uh, uh, comes toward them and there's going to be a showdown and doesn't look so good for Jason the Argonauts. But Medea says, we don't know if he's immortal, but we do know that he has this inner system that's sealed by that bronze bolt on his ankle. Let's see if he's got human emotions. I might be able to persuade him and then trick him into letting us remove that bolt on his ankle. And she's right. Tell us is a kind of cyborg. He's like a hybrid of a machine and human. He has, he's made of metal, um, but he has some human emotions. And Medea the witch plays on those. She exploits that. And she convinces him that she can make him immortal. And he wants to be immortal. That's a human desire. He wants to be invulnerable and live forever. Um, and she says, I can do that for you, but I only if you allow me to remove that bronze bolt. And we have vase paintings that show Medea and Jason using a tool to remove that bronze bolt. And the myth says when the bolt was removed, his life force flowed out like molten lead, and he toppled over and died. So he was built by technology, but he was taken down by technology. So... uh 
he was built by Hephaestus, who was divine. Um, in later stories, or in other stories, um, the inventor is um, mortal. And that's a difference, right? That's a big difference. Um, Hephaestus uh, could build things with uh, his awesome divine abilities. He's a blacksmith, but he's working with uh, familiar tools and methods and materials that you would find in any blacksmith shop, but because he's a god, he can achieve these awesome, spectacular results, which makes it into science fiction. Um, But there was another uh, figure in Greek mythology you've probably all heard of, Daedalus, um, who was a brilliant craftsman in uh, the kingdom of Crete. He worked for King Minos. Um, and so he, he, made, uh, he made statues that supposedly could move on their own. He made lots of different invent- inventions of tools, things like that. And uh, he, So he was the sort of a composite of all the brilliant craftspeople that really existed in antiquity um, and then made into a mythical, legendary character. And that that uh, brings us to the idea of biotechne, um, the 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 um, the gift that's supposedly given by Prometheus to mankind after his brother. This is all in the book. It's fascinating. Uh, Epimetheus gives all of the really amazing uh, qualities of speed and feathers and scales and keen eyesight to the animals. And when he comes to man, there's nothing worthwhile left, and man is this pudgy, defenseless creature. And um, so Prometheus gives him um, tools, and the fire. ability to fire and, and tools. The, I mean, mm-hmm. technology is very, I mean, fire is an important technology. A lot of people think that that's what allowed humans to become cooperative and uh, develop language and, and all, the, um, all the things that we think of as civilization. And I just want to point out that Prometheus's name means foresight in Greek. His brother Epimetheus, that name means hindsight. <laughs> He's very short-sighted. So the two brothers are uh, uh, sort of perfectly matched in, um, uh, even in their name. But uh, Prometheus feels sorry for the naked humans who have nothing. They don't have... The scales, the claws, the fangs, they're defenseless. So he steals fire for them, and he also gives them tools. And uh, uh, throughout uh, classical antiquity, it seems like Prometheus has given, uh, was imagined as giving human beings almost everything that we think of as uh, civilization. And, and Daedalus is, in a sense, the embodiment of those skills, Yes, Daedalus is uh, the legendary, brilliant craftsman who can think of a solution to almost every problem using technology somehow. So he invents new tools, and uh, and when he was imprisoned by King Minos in the labyrinth that he built uh, for the Minotaur, uh, he actually escaped by making uh, pairs of wings for himself and his son uh, based on imitating real bird's wings. Um, So he goes to prison, and I was hoping we'd get to this. Um, It's the inevitable question about the first sex toys. Um, Daedalus invented the first sex toy, which is why he was sent to the labyrinth, which is why he invented the wings. 
Um, so this caught my attention that <laughs> Queen Posifei cast a spell on King Minos, who was kind of an early Donald Trump figure. And she was um, a witch. <laughs> yes, yes yeah. unfaithful to his wife. And so yeah. she um, cast a spell on him whereby uh, when he had an affair with another woman, he would ejaculate scorpions and snakes. And millipedes. Don't and, millipedes, millipedes. and millipedes. And millipedes. <laughs> And so Zeus punished her for that. Yes. Zeus punished uh, Pasiphae for um, putting such a foul curse on his son, Minos. So, uh, he Humiliating, punished, too. Yes, and so he wanted to uh, humiliate Pasiphae. And what he did was um, made, her de- made her conceive a desire for the finest bull in King Minos's herd. And she just cannot stop thinking about this bull. So she goes to Daedalus, who is the big uh, major craftsperson in the kingdom, and tells him that she needs to somehow be able to attract this bull to have sex with it. So Daedalus builds an artificial, hyper-realistic cow. And he, he covers it with the hide of a cow from that herd so that it will be recognizable to the, um, to the bull that she wants to attract. And Pasiphae is very pleased with this, and she crawls in, and the bull mounts the fake um, cow and impregnates Pasiphae, and she gives birth to the minotaur. There's a wonderful vase painting (laughs) that shows Pasiphae with the baby minotaur in her lap. And her facial expression is is priceless. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you don't see very many vase paintings of baby monsters. That's, in fact, the only one I know of is the baby minotaur. And she's just got it in her lap and uh, she's gesturing and frowning. Um, so that was her punishment. And then Minos then imprisoned uh, the Minotaur in the labyrinth that he forced Daedalus to build. But what's interesting about that cow is that it, um, it was realistic enough to fool a bull. Um, and it was a sex toy because uh, it, it was animated, brought to life by the human being who's inside of it. So... You call that biometric? (laughs) Biomimetic. Biomimetic, right. Right, right. And so for that, um, Daedalus was confined to the labyrinth he built, which is why he had time to look out the window and think (laughs) about how to build the wings for his escape with Icarus, right? That's right, and everyone probably knows that story. It's a very tragic story. Um, But it also shows human ingenuity and uh, just that desire to imitate or somehow possess the power of the animals who seem to have so many more abilities than we do. I mean, flight. So he, um, he makes the wings, and, uh, and they, he and his son then escape from the, from the labyrinth by flying away on the wings. And, of course, Daedalus warns his son not to fly too close to the, uh, to the ocean um, because or the, sun. the moisture will, will <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. affect the glue, which was an invention of Daedalus, glue. Um, don't fly too close to the sun, or the heat will melt the wax that's holding, uh, holding the feathers in place. And, of course, uh, Icarus, Icarus is a young man, and he's filled with ecstasy as he 
experiences flight for the first time and he just soars much too high and the sun's rays melt the wax and uh, and the glue and the wings fall to pieces and he plummets into the into the uh, into the ocean and there are a lot of um, vase paintings of this uh, tragedy and also uh, figurines and um, it was a very popular story then and all the way through the Middle Ages and everyone knows the story now. But what's interesting is that Daedalus did escape, I mean, mm-hmm. at a very high cost, mm-hmm. but his innovation did get him uh, to the island of Sicily where he then began working for another tyrant. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it's also lasted, and, and through the lens of your telling, it's, it's fascinating because it's really about the connection between innovation and hubris and the tools that we have that give us superhuman powers um, can also easily be abused by our own sense of power and um, unnatural strength, which is what happened not to Daedalus, but to his son, who, who couldn't handle the the power. Yeah, that's right. He, he was, uh, maybe again, once again, maybe he was Epimethean, maybe he was short-sighted um, and just went for that, that short-term uh, rapture of flying instead of um, following his father on their escape route. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you, you mentioned uh, that this is a story that's replicated through vase paintings, and many of these stories are also told in mosaics and frescoes, and um, you talk a lot in the book about uh, the ways in which the Greeks really loved lifelike depictions. Um, and Daedalus was also known as a sculptor of living statues, which were um, uncannily like uh they they behaved uncannily like humans, and people were fascinated by watching even um, sort of hideous moments from their own lives replicated on you know cups you drink from <laughs> these sort of horrible stories of uh, 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 you know the sex toy or whatever in your coffee cup in the morning. Um, but the Greeks <laughs> love that, right? Well, the, it's really interesting. I, I spent a whole section in the book on. Um, the ancient versions of the un, of the uncanny valley uh, effect. Now that was first identified in 1970 by a Japanese uh, robotics maker um, Masahiro Mori, who identified this sort of eerie, disturbing, disquieting f- feeling that a person gets when they encounter a robot that is very realistic, really seems human. So that um, our our positive feelings uh, rise very steeply the more realistic a robot looks. But then as it begins to approach uh, being indistinguishable from a, from a real human being, we suddenly feel a negative, creepy feeling. And that is the valley that uh, the robotics people talk about, that uncanny Valley is just very disturbing, and although that was first described in 1970, um, there there are versions of that even in classical Greece, when people encountered very realistic life-size statues of human beings and animals, and the the artists and sculptors of of classical antiquity had had learned new techniques and uh, innovations that allowed them to make 
hyper-realistic statues. And we have to remember that all the marble statues that we think of as white were painted very realistically, not in gaudy colors, but naturalistic colors. They were mixed with wax to give that uh, a feel, a look of flesh. Mm-hmm. And even the bronze um, sculptors, sculptures were painted. They were all painted, and some of them had inlaid uh, silver fingernails mm-hmm. and eyes that were made of inlaid gems and eyelashes and just the details uh, made these statues seem real. And so that feeling of reality um, and the illusion of reality, it's based on, on what you know and what what is suddenly surprising, the shock of the new. And just um, there are many uh, instances of of people in antiquity jumping back in fear when they encounter these statues that seem like they're like they're about to breathe or move or speak, um, and if you look at their at the at the marble and the bronze, they are incredibly realistic. Even though we no longer see the paint, I mean, they show muscles and tendons, and um, people would would wince with empathy and sympathy if you, if they saw a realistic statue of a lame person or someone wounded or something like that. So uh, people ha- artists had competitions to make trompe l'oeil paintings, paintings that look so real that they would fool horses or fool uh, birds into pecking at a uh, painted bunch of grapes or something. So they were capable of some really uh, naturalistic um, uh, statues. And, of course, in temples, um, we hear that there were statues that could blink, that could sweat, that could bleed, that could nod their heads, that could open a door. I mean, So there, people were using technology to make statues that really could move in antiquity. And then you have to imagine seeing these with just the flickering light from an oil lamp mm-hmm. at night, mm-hmm. um, they would seem pretty real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, maybe a slight shift, um, thinking about um, the ways that we can be tricked by the illusion of life. Um, I think of the story of Pandora, which in your telling is quite different from the traditional story of Pandora that we, we see in our Edith Hamilton um, yeah, I think almost everyone uh, is familiar with the fairy tale version of Pandora, where she's a an innocent young girl who uh, just can't resist opening that box. It, it's um, it was really originally a jar, a sealed jar, but in the Middle Ages there was a mistranslation; it became a box. So that's why we talk about Pandora's box. But we imagine her as, a, or we're we're told that she was an a young woman who just couldn't resist that temptation to open the box, and that you've all seen pictures of her reeling back in horror as as all of the suffering and misery that afflicts humankind swarm out of that that box or jar. That was not the original story at all. Uh, she was not an innocent young woman. She was actually an artificial young woman who was made to inspire lust in human beings and therefore fool them into accepting her into their life where she could carry out her one mission on earth to open that jar. 
and, and unleash she, that's right. all of the miseries of mankind. This and is this her was job. to punish. This was Zeus's. Uh, Zeus was a very vindictive tyrant, and did not like the fact that Prometheus stole fire from the gods and gave it to humans. And so to punish Prometheus, we all know what happened to him. He was chained to a mountain, and Hephaestus forged a uh, bronze eagle that came like clockwork at the same time every day to peck out his liver and then would leave, and the liver regenerated, and the eagle would come back every day. Um, But to punish humans for accepting that gift of fire, he asked Hephaestus, in fact, he commanded Hephaestus to make an, a seductive artificial woman named Pandora, which means all gifts. And the Greek can either mean she brings or releases all gifts, or she received all the gifts of the gods who helped in her construction. So um, already she has a kind of ironic name because gifts is kind of in quotation marks. And she has one mission on earth, um, and that is to open that box. So she comes to Earth. She's described um, as having the intelligence of a female dog. Um, <laughs> she has sort of a dull, stupid look and marries Prometheus's brother, Epimetheus, who lacks uh, vision and forethought. He, his, mean, his name means short-sighted. Uh, so... Um, Pandora was made to be very, very beautiful, and she was dressed in finery. And there's a vase painting that shows all the gods contributing to her, uh, to her being prepared for her mission on Earth. And she is looking straight ahead at the viewer with a kind of vacuous smile on her face. Even dog-like. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, one uh, Art scholar has described her as looking like a, a wind-up doll about to be wound up. So she she's standing there very stiffly with her arms at her side and with this sort of silly grin on her face, which is really rare in ancient vase paintings. People don't usually have expressions on their faces, nor do they look straight out at the viewer. That's usually used for something that is not alive, um, like a mask or, or a statue or something. So the vase painter is showing her as a, a doll or a statue that is going to come to life once she gets to Earth. So Hermes, the messenger of the gods, brings her down to Earth and presents her to Epimetheus. And Epimetheus says, wow, she's hot, and accepts her into his life. And Prometheus tries to warn his brother. Of course, Prometheus, Mr. Foresight, um, says, she's no good for you. Um, and Epimetheus doesn't listen. No. And Pandora. Pandora gets in his house, and she opens the, uh, the jar, and all the uh, suffering and misery uh, swarms out into a cloud, uh, and they will afflict humankind for eternity. Poverty. Poverty. Old age. Old age, disease, plagues. everything you can think of that happens to humans that we don't like. But she does, for some reason, (laughs) slam the lid back on the jar and leaves one thing in the jar. Can you tell us about that? Yes, the poet Hesiod tells this story uh, in two of his epic poems. And he uh, he says that um, she slams the the lid shut... uh, 
and it's by Zeus's command. She has been programmed to open the jar and then to slam it shut so that the last thing inside cannot escape, and the last thing inside is hope. Now, in the fairy tales that you're all familiar with, you, you've all seen the illustrations of the uh, hope is a sort of beautiful fairy who wafts out of the out of the box and and brings comfort uh, to humankind. Um, that is not the original Greek story. Uh, in ancient Greece, hope was not a good thing. Hope was not real. <laughs> <laughs> hope is. Hope is blind hope. It's wishful thinking. It's the lack of foresight. It's 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 just uh, um, it's never good. It's never uh, it's never a boon to humans, um, unless you think that it's good that we can't see ahead to all of the disasters that will befall us. And in fact, philosophers since antiquity have been debating: was that the worst thing in the box or the best thing in the box? Um, that leads really beautifully, maybe, to we have about 10 minutes left, to um, a question about what you think we can learn. I mean, I know you live in Silicon Valley, and you're surrounded by people who feel that we're confronting the ethical issues of AI that people think we're, uh, we're confronting for the very first time. But in fact, uh, your book is filled with examples of hubris and ethics and people wanting to live forever and the, the challenges and problems associated with that. Um, I wonder if you could give us a couple of highlights of ethical issues that the Greeks dealt with or, or confronted right. through Well, as you notice, uh, as I mentioned, I, I gave a little foreshadowing that if, the, if these self-moving uh, uh, devices and automatons are, are used for the benefit of the gods— uh, they seem benign. So they, the myth seems to be saying that these are fine and and really cool to imagine on a sort of abstract level uh, in the realm of, of of the divine. But it's once they get sent to Earth when trouble starts. And I think that that's a that's a kind of strong message that um, we need to pay attention to. Not just the practical problems of uh, making artificial life and seeking immortality, seeking to surpass. Uh, natural lifespans, things like that. Um, uh, they're not only practical problems associated with with that quest, but also moral and ethical problems. Um, it's when those entities got sent down to earth in the myths that Asimov's laws get, start getting broken. Um, humans are are uh, harmed by them. I yeah. think about the story of Sisyphus. Um, which uh, I don't know how many people here uh, were taught uh, the story of Sisyphus in a way that we sort of pity Sisyphus. You know, he's got to roll the rock uphill for eternity. It feels unfair, whatever he did. (laughs) But if you know what he did and the effects of what he did, um, it becomes a different story. It becomes an ethical story. That's right. We, we all know the, the, the phrase Sisyphean task. It means it's a never-ending rolling a rock up a hill and it falls down again and you, you will roll it up the hill for, for eternity. So we, like you say, we feel pity for him and sympathy. But uh, he was actually a tyrant in the Greek mythology, a tyrant who wanted to live forever. So he captured Thanatos, uh, uh, the personification of death in Greek mythology, and put him in chains. And now nothing on earth could die. So no one could make any sacrifices to the gods um, 
old and sick people uh, could not die. They they were left suffering. Um, uh, the god of war, Ares, was extremely angered by this because now war just became a stupid game that nobody nobody was going to die. I mean, what kind of game is that? Um, the stakes were very low uh, now, and so it, it's no fun for Ares anymore. And um, And what does it mean when tyrants and evil people can live forever? Um, uh, finally, uh, I think it was Hermes who was sent down to release death from the chains, and uh, Sisyphus was then punished uh, with that with that task of rolling the ball up for eternity to yet, see what it felt like to live forever. Yeah. <laughs> and yet, there are people in Silicon Valley. We won't name names. We we did in the green room, but you you know who they are <laughs> who are who are spending their technology fortunes thinking about how to extend human life indefinitely. So it's interesting to think about the ways that. We haven't really considered that many of the ethical issues that feel so current and so present and so kind of like our burden alone. For example, uh, you brought up uh, self-driving cars and the ethics of uh, who will program them to save whom in the event of an accident or the event of a collision. That's right. There are people in Silicon Valley working on uh, extending uh, the human lifespan um, Indefinitely, they th- they think they can make death an option, but there's a problem associated with that. Many problems associated with it. One sm- one practical problem is that uh, um, cells degenerate and die. Uh, and how do you how do you ensure that you won't become old and decrepit and ill if you're living forever? So that's uh, that's one of the problems. Just just one of. Of the many practical problems, but then there are the ethical problems too. Um, if everyone if everyone lives forever, what happens to human memory? We've evolved a memory to last about store about sixty to seventy. Um, being optimistic here, uh, years of memories, and then what happens to memory then? And do you, would you really would you value memory if you lived forever? And what happens to human courage um, and fighting for high stakes, self-sacrifice, doing things against all odds. I mean, the gods are immortal, and no one calls them brave or courageous because the stakes are really low for them. They never die. So they never exhibit courage in the face of uh, overwhelming odds. And we also end the future, right? Because we can't reproduce because, first of all, we're ancient, decrepit beings with hideous cells and no one wants to sleep with us. And also <laughs> because there isn't room for us to procreate and make more people because we've sort of ended ended humanity with ourselves, right? It's yeah, a- the overpopulation problem alone is, is one of the most striking uh, uh, Problems, you know. There's a, a myth, of course. I, um, people get really sick of me saying there's a myth about that. <laughs> there is. Um, um, there was a goddess. The goddess of dawn uh, fell in love with a human being, and she uh, brought him up to um, heaven. And she asked the gods to make him immortal like herself, because she could not. She just couldn't bear the idea that he was going to die one day because he's immortal, um, because he was. A mortal man, um, and they granted her wish. But of course, 
like all good fairy tales, it, it was uh, taken too literally. She forgot to ask uh, that he never age. So he became very, very old and more and more frail, and he just uh, um, wasn't attractive to her anymore. And the gods really aren't happy with uh, old age, and they all are ageless. They're immortal. And so she, the myth tells us, closed him up in a golden room where he just babbles on and on for eternity. And they say that the sound of a cicada is him begging for death. <laughs> and his name was Tithonus, and the people in Silicon Valley speak of the, that problem. How can you remain ageless if you're immortal? Um, they call it the Tithonus problem. So they read myths. They do know these myths, but they think they can escape uh, the messages. <laughs> There's not a great segue for this, but I, I'd love to bring, you know, uh, up to the present, kind of with some of the, the current examples that you conclude your book with about a little bit about hubris or a little bit about the ways that we don't always anticipate um, how easily we can be felled by our own innovations and technology. And I was thinking about the bots from Microsoft Word that um, were easily tricked. Yes, they were tricked um, by, other, by humans that they were supposed to learn from. Um, maybe some of you remember that uh, Microsoft had a, invented a chat bot who was a um, AI entity who was supposed to go live on Twitter and then without any uh, human uh, humans directing her, she was supposed to learn from uh, conversations on Twitter how to uh, hold conversations like a human being. And she was um, fairly immediately uh, completely uh, um, perverted into a Hitler-loving racist bigot um, and began spewing all of these <laughs> invectives and uh, unacceptable um, sentiments. Within hours, she had been turned into a very bad <laughs> human being <laughs> by her conversations with people who deliberately... Uh, uh, did this. Um, and I think that was a good thing that they did because Microsoft had to remove her from Twitter within hours. And then they came up with a new one. Um, Zoe? Zoe. Uh, and the same thing happened. She had to be removed immediately, too, <laughs> even though she was blocked from receiving certain, uh, certain terms and words uh, that people were still able to hack uh, and uh, do that. And, uh, and I think it, may, it reminds me of the techno wizard Medea. She was a great hacker, too. And the, the message from uh, Talos, um, he was made by technology, but it, if, as soon as you make something, invent something with technology, there's going to be someone who can destroy it with or interfere with it using technology. It's just an endless loop, and people knew that even in antiquity. There's also the other side of that, which we talked about, the, uh, uh, the, the occasions when machine learning makes it possible for artificial intelligence to um, compute way beyond even the ability of its creators to comprehend. And what happens then? What are the ethical questions posed at that time? And 
Are there any stories of those being anticipated by the Greeks? Well, I think what you're referring to is the fact that AI is developing and soon developing into a black box technology where uh, the the algorithms and the vast data that's available to the AI will allow it to make decisions on uh, on a scale that uh, that we as the users don't understand, and even the makers will not be able to recreate or retrace how those decisions were made. So it becomes a black box. Um, And that's a problem that AI people are very aware of. Um, Who's going to be responsible for for when bad things happen with with black boxes? Um, And I think they're... They're meeting probably as we speak, talking about this. But one of the solutions was to uh, teach AI about human beings using stories. And people suggested um, that we could give them the scripts and and let them watch Hollywood movies, fairy tales, um, uh Urban legends. Could they read James Baldwin stories? and Alison Rowe? We can choose what they read <laughs> to learn about how good humans want to behave and make decisions. And of course, once again, that could backfire in some way. But um, there is a program uh, uh, under development now. It's called Scheherazade, named after the great Persian storyteller who saved her own life by telling story after story after story, uh, suspenseful stories that kept uh, her captor uh, enchanted. So this program is called Scheherazade, and it's teaching AI stories about how humans, how non-psychotic humans act is one way they described it. Of course, it could backfire. They could learn then to do the opposite. But maybe we could teach them these ancient Greek myths Mm -hmm. to show why humans have have had mixed feelings about the quest for artificial life and why we both have hope and fear and uh, um, awe and dread about playing God. Beautiful. Thank you. I think that's a wonderful place to stop. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. And just just to say that I hope you will take a moment and buy this wonderful book and have Adrian sign it for you. We didn't get to talk about spirituality, but there is a section in the book that includes that. There's also wonderful descriptions of the early bionic uh, toes and eyeballs that really is worth the price of the book. And the glossary as well is really intriguing in thinking about the kinds of questions that came up tonight. So thank you all for coming, and thank you, Adrian. Thank you. This is really enjoyable. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.